Well, friends, we are in Luke chapter 10 and walking through verses 38 through 42 this morning, the the famous story of Mary and Martha. And my desire is that we we would see this rightly. We would not bring preconceived notions that distract us, distort our understanding of such a famous passage like this one. This is a passage that is so famous that we will call people by these names. We will say, well, this person is more of a Martha, or this person is, is more of a Marian, depending on how you are set up, depending on your uh, personality, depending on, we can even be honest here, what issue we are interacting with at the time, or what hobby horse that someone is dealing with, their opinion of being a Mary or a Martha in that area could be um, distorted or not rightly understood. And so we're going to look at this passage, and I pray that we would look at it clearly and with right eyes, understanding where Lucas placed this within this gospel. So let's look at that passage there in Luke 10 and verses 38 through 42, and it says this, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Dear friends, please understand that misplaced priorities can steal the joy out of the Christian life. This is a household, you need to remember, that, was, that had great, had a deep friendship with Jesus. Mary and Martha are sisters. Their brother, as you remember, is Lazarus, Lazarus, whom Jesus resurrected, Jesus, who Jesus raised even from the dead. Um, they are the ones who will say to Jesus when he arrives at Lazarus's funeral, they will say, Lord, if only you were here, our brother wouldn't have died. Our brother would still be here. Uh, Mary is the one, the one who is sitting at Jesus' feet here, is also the one who will break the great alabaster jar of ointment, this very expensive bottle of ointment. Likely, believe it or not, thirty to $40,000 in value is the value of the ointment that she placed on his hair and his feet, and then she wiped his feet with her hair. And if you remember, it was Judas that was concerned about this, certainly concerned about the poor and how they could have sold this for the poor. Give a little context here. Martha seems to be uh, the oldest. She's also the, the head of the household. And she's likely a widow. That's our understanding and gleaning from here. We don't know these things for sure, but they are things that make sense regarding how it is that she is spoken of. Um, We don't see her husband named here. Um, We see her normally named first. We also see Martha welcoming Jesus. She's likely the hostess of this event. Martha is an Aramaic word, and it means mistress, or you could understand it like the word master or lord. It's the the feminine version of that. She is the mistress of this household. 
Some have tried to allegorize this, as we saw within the story of the Good Samaritan. I don't know what it is about this particular section of Scripture. Perhaps it is these passages that people relate to more or these passages that are more famous that people begin to try to allegorize them. And now Christians have tried to allegorize this one as well and interpret it in, in very strict ways that distract us from what is actually happening in this passage. And so they will look at this and say, well, Mary is the one who is here, who is living this more, uh, you know, life of contemplation, life of consideration of these deep and theological things, and Martha is this very busy person. And so people have used this little story here to justify, uh, you know, the dealings of of monks in this monastic lifestyle. Um, Some would even argue for an ascetic lifestyle they don't live an ascetic lifestyle. They are a family that is well off. They're not overly wealthy, but, but they're well off. They're, they're definitely, you could put them in the upper middle class, and this is at a time when there's really not much of a middle class, if we're honest here. They are, they are on the higher end of the income, or rather just wealth um, level within this, this time period. If you can open up a jar that's worth $30,000 and dump it on someone's feet and their hair, you're, you're doing all right. And this is a family that was doing well uh, financially. So you couldn't use this to argue for this ascetic lifestyle, but the monks would try to make an argument for this, 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 this person, this life of contemplation, and, and use it to contrast it with Martha, this busyness, this, this active lifestyle. Origin is one in particular that um, lived a life somewhat in this way. Um, and among the other problems that we have with Origen's interpretation, we have it here. He looks at Mary and Martha, allegorizes it, and says, well, well, Mary is like the faithful Gentile, and Martha is like the Jew that is working and trusting in the works of the law for his salvation. That's not at all how we need to approach a passage Uh, like this. We don't need to contrast these two and see, well, Mary's the theological one, and then Martha is the one who is of service, and Jesus prefers you to be one who is theological rather than one who is of service. People may tend to identify with one person or the other within this story, but that's them projecting themselves on here. I think if we're honest, if we look at a story like this honestly, we, we can identify that Martha's issue within this passage is one that all of us can relate to and one that all of us need to be mindful of. And we need to look at Martha accurately. This is not the only story that we have of her, and I want to caution us there, merely to just having Martha be known as this person that was you know, in this, she, what she did here was wrong. She's correcting Jesus. She's, she's judging Jesus. Um, that's not a good day if you're doing both of those things in the same day, and she is corrected by Jesus on this. But you need to view this through the lens and understand that these are godly women. These were friends of Jesus. These were uh, dear people to Christ as He walked upon uh, this earth. And there is this tension here that is arising between these two godly women, and it's a tension that we all need to consider. And whatever that particular action is that we're looking at that other people aren't doing that is beginning to weigh upon us, 
cause us anxiety, cause us stress, disrupt our relationship with God, disrupt our relationship with other people. Those are the areas where we need to be mindful of Christ's instruction within this, this passage. We must consider it rightly. Each of us can easily, easily be pulled in our desires in the same way that Martha is being pulled in her desires within this passage. We can all have a particular area, a priority for us at the moment that is, that is prioritized higher, higher than our worship of God. And we can look around, why isn't everyone else doing this? We can imagine if only everyone else was doing the same thing that I'm doing here, just imagine what would happen. Just imagine what we could accomplish if only everyone else was doing this right here. This can cause frustration for the Christian. It's that Christian that is frustrated with these other Christians that aren't doing things exactly the way they believe they should be doing them at this time, then looks to God like, what is happening? See how this can happen for us as well. That's what happens with Martha in this passage. Three points I want us to consider. Three points. The first is divine devotion. We see divine devotion with Mary. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. She is receiving instruction. She is corrected by her sister in the midst of sitting at the feet of Jesus and receiving instruction. Secondly, we see distracted deeds. Distracted deeds. Martha is overwhelmed with the tasks of this great banquet, this banquet that she is putting on. She is most likely the one who has created the agenda. She is the one who has set up the menu for the day. She has ordered the affairs of this banquet, and it is all in celebration of Jesus who is here. We need to see her as one who loves Jesus, one who is desiring to serve Jesus but her heart is distracted. Her deeds are distracted because she has improper priorities. Thirdly, we see distinct direction. Distinct direction. Christ is very specific in His criticism toward her. Christ is very specific in His encouragement that He is giving to her. He is commending Mary on her choice, and He is correcting Martha over her disposition, over her attitude that she has toward her sister, who is doing what is good, who is, as we see here, choosing the good portion. In the Greek, this is, this is, this is almost, it, is, it, it would almost be worded as choosing the good thing that is the better, best thing. It is a superlative idea that is communicated within the text. So it is a good thing, but it is also the better, best thing, that which should be prioritized, that which should be flowing out and influencing even the actions that Martha does. Let's look at this divine devotion. Let's consider Mary and her devotion to Christ. We see this in verse 39 of Luke chapter 10. It's, and it says, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to His teaching this banquet is being prepared. Mary most likely was involved in some way in this banquet. Most likely she was involved. This is her house. She lives here. She likely was doing some things in preparation for this banquet. But at this time right now, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And you need to see this as something that is odd. You don't see this as odd. 
you don't think that it is odd at all for someone to be teaching a woman or for a woman to be sitting at the feet of a rabbi. And what that means is that she's learning from him. It's, it's, a, it's a figure of speech. It's a way of communicating an idea. But within the first century culture, there are some that would have found this to be inappropriate. A, a rabbi w- normally wouldn't allow a woman to sit at his feet. It doesn't mean none of them anywhere ever did. But as a general practice, there was a disposition amongst rabbis in the first century. Um, and the woman would be sitting in the back of the room. They would be sitting somewhere else, not in close proximity, having this, you know, conversation and interaction with, with the rabbi. But Jesus here is once again interacting with women in a way that is inconsistent with the way many in his culture that were rabbis would have interacted with, with women. And um, some even, it's, it's really astounding when you read some of these rabbinic writings. Uh, some of them believe that it was, it was useless to teach a woman. Um, one rabbi wrote that, that the teaching of the Torah to a daughter of a rabbi was merely filling her mind with excessiveness. Now, that's an incredible perspective, especially when you consider Deuteronomy 6 and you consider this idea of discipling children and raising them up and instructing them. This is, this is someone, dear rabbi, who is going to be influencing your grandchildren, and you think it's filling her minds with excessiveness that she would be studying the Word of God. There are three in particular that, were, that rabbis shunned or looked down upon being taught at their feet. The one was women, the other was Gentiles, and the third was Samaritans, and we've already talked about the perspective of the Jews in the first century toward uh, Samaritans. But the feet at which Mary sits at this time will soon be nailed to a cross. Perhaps Mary listened. Perhaps Mary was, unlike many of the disciples, she was actually listening to what He said perhaps she was one that seriously considered His words when He talked about the fact that He would go to Jerusalem and He would die. And she's spending time with him at this time. Mary is sitting, Martha is serving, and Jesus is instructing. We have a priority here in Mary's life. She is prioritizing feeding from Christ. She's prioritizing not living on bread alone, but living on the very Word of God. John MacArthur makes this point, and he was very good, I would say, on this passage. He says, whatever is primary defines, informs, and motivates everything else. Whatever is primary defines, informs, and motivates everything else. Feeding upon the Word of God was, was primary, was a priority to Mary, and so it was informing the rest of her life. It is something, this priority is, is serving as a guide for the other actions. That's the idea that we need to see here. This is not a tension between learning or acting, okay? It's not, it's not, a, a, it's not a tension here between contemplation and social action. It's the one needs to inform the other. This is not an either or. So, as we consider this, we can ask ourselves this question, do I sit at the feet of Jesus? Do, do I desire to learn from the Word of God, or, or, or do the many 
aspects of my life, the, the busyness of my life, the busyness of my family, is it a distraction? Does my study of the Word of God, does my feeding upon the Word of God, does it order and prioritize my life? Because your life is going to be ordered differently if you make feeding upon the Word of God a priority. The Lord's Day is going to be different for you. If you make feeding from the Word of God a priority, it's going to be distinct. We can find all kinds of many things to be involved in that are important. We can find all kinds of things that are urgent that can be a distraction from that, which is primary. We must be on guard, be on guard against the tyranny of the urgent. Consider, we read this earlier in the call to worship, but David says this in Psalm 27 and verse 4, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Such consideration will inform the actions that you do in your life. Paul in Philippians 3, in verses 13 through 14, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This was a priority for Paul. It, it was a primary thing that influenced and affected the other aspects of his life. That even in times when he was sitting in prison, the priority of serving the church, the priority of feeding from the Word of God is something that was oriented at the forefront. It, being put in prison didn't get in the way of God's plan. It gave him time to write so many of the epistles that we read that the church has been blessed from over these years. While Martha was preparing a meal, Mary was feeding on the Word of God. We must not make excuses. We must not make excuses for, for turning down that which is good, that which should be primary. Where are your priorities in this area? The sadness of sin, the sadness of the consequences and the effects of sin is that it will lead us to despise things that are even good, despising even things that Jesus commands. And we see that here, I would argue, with Martha's behavior. And we see, secondly, these distracted deeds. Martha becoming preoccupied with this banquet in such a way that she is despising the work, the action of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and feeding upon the Word of God. Let's look at that, verses 38, and we're going to read through 40 there so we can get the full picture of Martha. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into the house, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Martha's attitude here the disposition of Martha's heart, the, the, the improper priorities that she has during this time are disrupting her relationship with her sister and with Jesus. Martha is distracted with much serving, and she is despising her sister, and she is upset with Jesus at this time. 
This began with something that is well-intended. She meant well starting out, but the end of this, the disposition of her heart, led her into the area of sin. Meaning well, hoping to do well, doesn't make an action right. We must understand the law of God properly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's beyond just a mere action. It flows out from the heart. That's the reality of the law of God, that all aspects are influencing that which is done. You can have a right action that is done with the wrong motive, and then it is distorted. I think it's, an, it's appropriate for us to recognize Luke's placement of this story. It's following right after the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable that we walked through last week. And we have a picture there of one who is of service, where the question was being asked, not who should I love, but who, how would I want someone to love me? Not, not the question of let me size everyone up and see who is worthy of my love, but rather if I was in the situation of this man who was beaten and disrobed and left on the side of the road, would I really care what religion the person practiced that helped me? No, I would desire to be helped. I would desire the help of this Samaritan, even though I respected the priest and the Levite more. And that's the picture that we have there, and that is a picture of service. That is a picture of true and right service. And we have here this put just another perspective on this aspect of service and a recognition of the heart that the service is flowing out of. We must not pin Mary and Martha against one another, but we must look at Martha's priority. Consider what she does. Her misplaced priority at this time her, her disordered mindset leads her to judge Jesus and to command Jesus. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Consider those words. This is, this is Jesus. This is the one who has brought the world into existence. This is the one who has provided for her every need. And she asks him, do you care? Do you not care? Exodus 34 and verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you not care? Consider Nehemiah 9 and 17, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious to show mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. She's asking him if he cares. Of course he cares. He has provided for her every need, the entirety of her existence. He is on his way to the cross. He has lived a life for these past 33 years in perfect obedience to the law of God. He is going to take upon himself the fullness of the consequences of the sin of his people. She may live that she may have peace with God. And that same is there for you to understand, dear friend. This is what Christ has done. Christ fulfilled the law in every way. Christ took upon Himself the fullness of the consequences of sin, that whoever would believe upon Him, whoever would see their sin, whoever would see the ways in which they have violated God's law and turn to Christ to, to stop trusting in themselves, 
There's salvation for such a person. There's grace for such a person. She's judging Jesus, and then she is commanding Jesus. Tell her then to help me. You can almost hear the tone in her voice in that statement. Tell her then to help me. Don't you care? Tell her then to help me. She is exasperated. She was so blinded in her distracted deeds that she rebuked Jesus. Just ponder that for a moment. The, the audacity, the audacity of, of rebuking Jesus, the, the Lord of glory, the one who is sovereign over all things, the one who will lay down His life on her behalf. And she is rebuking Him here. This is not her finest hour. This is not her, her, her best day. If you're coming to a place and you're having a day where you're judging Jesus and you're commanding Jesus, you're, you're not having a good day. And she was not having a good day here. This is the consequences of sin. Please see this reality. Sin is so destructive that it will take something that is good, such as service to others, such as putting on a banquet, such as showing hospitality to other people, and make the chief of that service our own purpose rather than God's glory. And you can put not just a banquet or a wedding or, or anything and, you know, that you are prioritizing over the glory of God that has become a distraction to your worship of God, your obedience to God. It is distracting your mindset and your heart and your focus. And that is sin in those areas, and we must be mindful of these areas. You may not be someone who is who your first thought is hospitality. There's a great many of you that you don't need to be putting on banquets. That's not where your gifts are, but there are areas in your life that you prioritize because God's gifted you in certain ways. There are many different parts in the body of Christ. We all play different roles, and the gifts that we have must not be a source of disunity. The gifts that God has given to us if they become what is primary, if, if, the, if the living out of those gifts becomes a, 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 a primary aspect of what we're doing rather than the purpose for which they are done, it will be a distraction for us. I mean, how many of you have been there? I mean, how many of you as families have been there? It's okay, well, I'm going to take off work and I'm going to pay money. We're going to go on this vacation and you begin to travel and as you travel, let's be honest, you travel in conditions that aren't as comfortable as your home, and the family begins to get into these different conditions, and the sin nature begins to demonstrate itself between children, between parents and children, begins to show, and you ask yourself, well, can't I just have a decent vacation? Why must I deal with these areas? Well, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity to parent your children through this area. This is, a, this is an opportunity to disciple and to discipline in these areas. And let's be honest, parents, it is for you as well as the children. How many of you, after years of parenting, have noticed this reality that the Lord was working on you in your times of parenting as much as the Lord was working on your children through your parenting, as imperfect as your parenting was? Let us have proper priorities. The many, many things in our lives as Christians that can be good things. Let's be honest, children playing sports, that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. 
your homeschool curriculum, what the kids are going to study. That is exciting considering the different things that your kids will walk through. We can look at priorities in social action, helping the poor, advocating for some kind of a sinful problem with our, our culture, either social action, political action. These are all different areas that are, that are good things, but they must be properly prioritized. The Word of God in the study of the Word of God, the feeding on the Word of God must be that which influences all these other areas. For even these areas in and of themselves are not sufficient. They have an end to which they go, and they must be informed by the Word of God. The Lord doesn't despise events of hospitality. It's not the argument that anyone's making. The Lord is not despising service to others. This is not a tension that is narrow. It's not, I'm either going to be uh, someone who's, who, who contemplates deep things of theology, or I'm going to be someone who serves. You may be wound up certain ways, but honestly, your giftings are going to direct you in these ways, but the Word of God must influence us. We know hospitality is a good thing. The way Luke presents this is very, very positive. Martha is welcoming Jesus. Consider the Samaritans who did not receive him. She is welcoming him. We see hospitality overwhelmingly as that which is, is important, is a part of the Christian life, ultimately pointing to what we sang today, God and man at table sat down, that God has shown hospitality to us. God has been kind to us. God has been one who has accepted us. We likewise should be accepting of others, should be kind to others, should be loving to others. Overwhelmingly, we see these commands, Romans 12 and 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, Hebrews 13, 2 and 3. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body, First Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, and this is what she did. The wording that we have here in the Greek is a reception, a welcoming that is joyful. She is excited that he is here. She is wanting to entertain him. She is wanting, she's putting on this whole banquet for him because she loves him and she cares for him. So she's not in opposition to him as a, as a person, all right, but she is standing in opposition to him at this time in his mission. She is opposed to him at this particular moment in, the, in her dis- disposition toward him. He is instructing Mary. That is what he is desiring to do. That's a part of what he is doing. And she is standing in opposition to that. She is trying to pull her away from this instruction. John MacArthur makes this point. He says, Martha got her priorities twisted. She was fussing and fretting, trying to get everything arranged to her satisfaction, maybe to make an impression on Jesus. As a result, she failed to take advantage of a rare and priceless opportunity to hear in person the Lord of the universe teach and to be impressed profoundly by Him. She is like a female version of Peter at this point where she is correcting Jesus She is calling into question what he is doing. Mary's being instructed by the Lord, and Martha is seeking to instruct the Lord. Mary's receiving instruction from the Lord. Martha is seeking to give instruction to the Lord. 
Stop for a moment there. Where, where would you rather be? What position, what disposition would you rather be in? You could have asked Martha at some other time which would be the better place to be, and she would have told you, all right, this is where I should be. That's the reality. But when we get into situations and circumstances, we lose sight of these realities. There are many times where I'll be talking with someone, and they have disjointed priorities within their family life. We begin to talk about, okay, what's most important in your family? Let's, let's write those things down always. Go to church, read the Bible, do family worship, you know, family studying the Word together, individually studying the Word together. All these things are here. No one at, at the beginning says basketball. No one says swim team. No one says baseball when I ask them that list. And then you go over here to the other side. So this is what you say we should do. This is the theoretical idea of how you should prioritize. And you begin to walk through how it is the lives are being prioritized. And then you begin to find these things that were at the bottom on the top over here. And so there's a way in which we can intellectually know an answer but not be living it out in a particular area because we're not prioritizing things. And she wasn't at this time, and life is lived at the moment. Life is not lived in, in this theoretical way of speaking. Many of us like to sit around and talk and contemplate and talk about these theoretical ideas, theoretical ideas in, in government and church and family, but, but life is lived in, in the present, and that's where what's in our heart is going to manifest itself. And when these things aren't manifesting themselves right, that's pointing back to the fact that we're misprioritizing something, because that's her situation here. She's there before God, the creator of the world, and she is correcting Him. She is, she is bringing into question His choices and decisions at this point, and He's on His road to the cross. Philip Ryken says this. He says, her fault was that she grew cumbered with much serving so that she forgot Him and only remembered the service. Martha's ministry was keeping her from Jesus at this particular time. That's how we need to see it. In this particular way, this is what we need to see. And God loves us, and He will show us these areas that we can learn and we can turn. Do you hear this danger? Martha's ministry and her service at this time was keeping her from Jesus, not drawing her closer to Him. We must be mindful of these areas that are affecting us in this way, that are influencing our priorities. That which you know on this first list should be here, when it's not showing up on this second list, what I think to be right and what I should do, and then over here what I'm actually doing, we need to check our heart and we need to reprioritize things. And this is something you have to do throughout your life. Life is continually changing. You're going through different stages of life. We must take advantage of the opportunities that God gives to us. Riken says this, this can happen very quickly. For Martha, it happened from the time it took her to start preparing a meal. One minute she was welcoming Jesus into her home with joy. The next minute she was busy in the kitchen. The minute after that she was making a scene out in the living room. Martha's priorities were, were out of line. Godly service, service to God, service in the kingdom is not about walking around with a chip on your shoulder in regard to what everyone else is doing. It is a distraction to ministry. It's not joyful. This is a spirit of resentment, and it is anxious. It's a spirit of anxiety. So thirdly, we see Jesus' response 
to Martha. We see distinct direction given from Jesus to Martha. Let's look at the last two verses there, verses 41 and 42 of Luke chapter 10. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha, Martha, he says this. Now, you might not understand that. You might see that might sound like he's really coming down on her there, Martha, Martha. But that's not what that means within this context, to repeat a name twice like that. All right, David, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son. We see this in, in different places in the Bible, a, a repetition of a name. It is, it is a, a, a way of communicating a love for someone else, a care for someone else. And he's being gentle with her as well. He is correcting her. He's not backing down in the slightest way. He's giving very distinct direction, very specific direction toward her. He doesn't just say, well, it's, she means well. She's got a good heart. It's just coming out this way because she's so stressed about what she's dealing with. That is how we will sometimes interpret our actions. Sometimes we'll interpret the actions of other people in that way. But Jesus sees her heart in this area, and He corrects her. He says, one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary, and that is a phrase that the first century hearers would have identified in a particular way, and they would have understood that to be the study of the Torah. Multiple times over, we see that in rabbinic writings, this idea of one thing being necessary and that one thing being the study of the Torah or the study of the Word of God, this one necessary thing that this needs to be given priority, that needs to influence all these other areas. And Jesus here is putting His teaching even above that. The words that He's using here are emphasizing that idea. He's communicating, I am giving the very words of God. Um, don't mistake this. Jesus is not against celebrations. You don't need to look at it this way and look and say, well, Jesus is, is against anything that's ever, you know, celebratory or ostentatious. Jesus is, is always against banquets and feasts. We know that not to be true. His very first miracle was at a wedding. He made turn water into wine. That was significant for that time. It was important for the people at that wedding at that time not to run out of the refreshments. And so we need to see that as well. Likewise, we see Jesus at the house of a Pharisee in Luke 7. We saw that back at 36 to 38. Let me remind you of this. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair in his head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And so Jesus then goes on to criticize the Pharisee for not showing him the hospitality that even this woman showed him. The Pharisee was intentionally not showing him hospitality out of disrespect for him. But Martha here is showing respect for him, all right? But it's out of her expectations for this event and her expectations of others that she is in error, that's Martha's problem. It's not contemplation over action, but having right 
priorities. Geldenhus makes this point. He says, the story should not be taken to mean that the Savior taught that a life of quiet worship and contemplation is the right form of religion and that an active Christian life must be disapproved of. This is not a call to monasticism. No, it's a call to right priorities. It's not a call to turn away from service in favor of quiet contemplation. But the service that we do toward God and others must not be a distraction to our relationship with others and to God. We've all been there before. We've all seen something like that unfold. I believe one of the reasons why this is such a famous story is that it is one that we can relate to. Each and every person, if, you are, if you're mindful of it, if, if you consider your priorities and the way in which you begin to get agitated that this person's not doing this or doing that, you can find ways in which you, are, you can relate to what Martha is experiencing here. This is a reality of living as a sinful person in a sinful world. When anxiety begins to rise over what everyone else in the church is doing or what everyone else in the church isn't doing, and you, over how it is that you're not able to do what God has called you to do because all these other people aren't doing what they're supposed to do, you're demonstrating a lack of priority at that time. It's not the reality for you. It's not like God wants you to do something and you just can't do it because all these other people aren't doing what they're supposed to do. There are things other people are supposed to be doing. There's times to call people out for what they're not doing. But in regard to what God would have you do, God sovereignly placed you where you are. This is the culture you're in. This is the place that you are. And you must be mindful in God's providence. This is what He would have you do within this context. You don't have to do God's job. God's not looking for someone to run for God. He's sovereign. He has this. Our role here is to be faithful with what He has given to us. The Christian life is not one of service to God with an anxious spirit. We must not have an anxious spirit. We must not be fretting over what we see on the news each and every day. And this is a week where you can see a lot on the news to fret over to be greatly concerned over. If you're not an all-millennialist, perhaps you're, you're really, really concerned, and you started pulling out the charts to try to figure out where we are. Geldenhus makes this point. What we do, what we do learn here is that in our life's active service, we must not be anxious and agitated, sulky and dissatisfied with our fellow Christians or with our master and that we should not busy ourselves with such an extent of outward things that we neglect the quiet worship of the Lord. The most important part of a religion is the spiritual exercise of communion with the Redeemer. Notice Martha's agitation with Mary. And notice how she has this agitation towards Mary, and that agitation begins to affect her relationship with Jesus. It begins here with an agitation towards Mary, and it turns towards Christ. Ken Hughes says this. He says, there is a tendency for people who are wound tight like Martha to give everything to their particular area of calling or interest, and to allow that interest to so dominate their lives that they have little time to let God's Word speak to them. Without the benefit 
of the word, they adopt a mindset of narrowness, judgmentalism, or fault-finding. And eventually, through the creativity and the vitality they once gave to their, their area of ministry, sours. That's the misplaced priority. Even something that is good, even something that is holy, even a good action can become soured with misplaced priorities. Martha's actions are not rebuked by Jesus. You need to see this. He's not criticizing her service. He's not criticizing the, the banquet. It is her attitude. It is her disposition, her resentment toward her sister. Riken says this, Martha's rebuke shows behind all our self-pity and resentment are worries of an anxious heart. We must remember what the Word of God says about anxiety. God's not asking us to be God for Him. He's not calling us to do His job. He's not asking us to maintain and control His providential rule. No, Paul instructs us in Philippians verse 4, beginning in verse Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's something that is lacking in this area. Ken Hughes says this, Martha's self-appointed responsibilities distracted her from what mattered most. So it is with us. The self-imposed necessities of ministry smother us, from, and serving becomes a drudgery. Dear friends, it, it must not be so. We must be mindful of these realities, and this can be in ministry. This can be in service to others. This can be in service to your family. The drudgery can be there if we begin to have these misplaced priorities. We must serve the God who is. We must serve the God who is in the context where He has us, where He has placed us. We must not have our minds focused in this theoretical realm of what could be or what should be or how my life would be different or how I could serve God better if this was different or that was different. That's not what He's judging us on. We are placed in this particular context sovereignly sovereignly by His reign and His rule. And we must serve Him knowing He doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need any of us to do anything that we're doing. And some of you want to say, well, what do you mean? You don't think anyone should do anything? You know that's not what I mean. What we do is important. What we do has effects on people for generations to come. But we do not serve God in such a way that we build up resentment toward others, judgmentalism, anxiety. This is not a part of the Christian life. We serve a God who has brought all things into existence from nothing, and He has blessed us to serve and participate in particular areas at particular times. And we must joyfully relish that, joyfully cling to those opportunities, whatever they may be, though they may not be the way we desire them to be, we must sit back and say, but I am not sovereign. I am not Lord. We must remember what Paul says in Acts 17, beginning in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God's not in need of any of us. God is not fretting. God is not anxious. Jesus is not on his throne looking what has transpired over the past few weeks and fretting, concerned about what he is going to do. He's sovereignly ruling. And we have a Savior that is sovereignly ruling, and we can trust in him, trust in him, and walk in obedience without anxiety, right? Without judgmentalism toward other people that they're not interested and focused in things in the exact same way that we are. Mary is chosen, Jesus says, the good portion. It says that will not be taken away from her. Martha is anxiously fretting about her banquet, but Jesus, Jesus, listen, Jesus is inviting her to feed upon the Word of God, that her service may be rightly informed and blessed. When all is said and done, Jesus will be all in all. When there's no more service, no more meals, no more kids to pick up, no more places to take family, no more parents to take care of, Christ will be all in all. That's how we must see this. We must see the importance of priority, the prioritization of God's glory, the prioritization of feeding from the Word of God, that even the service that we do, even the actions that they do, they can be rightly informed, and they can be lived out in a way that glorifies God in the context where He has us.